Welcome to Arts Chat. This is John Robinette, one of your hosts. Today I'd like to present Joan Baldwin in her Arts Conference 2019 keynote address from Philadelphia. In this address, she discusses leadership and gender equity in museums, two topics for which she is well known and written about extensively. To find out more about Joan and her work, please go to leadershipmatters1213.wordpress.com or genderequitymuseums.com. Thanks and enjoy the episode. I'm really honored to be here. I'd like to thank the ARCS leadership and particularly Sydney Briggs for all the logistical help she gave me in getting me here. Um, I hope that what I say informs you, maybe startles you, but most of all, uh, and this builds actually on what Mark said, I hope that it leaves you with a desire to make change in your workplace and in your field. So a few weeks ago, I received an email from ARCS asking me to select uh, three areas of interest to be included on my conference name batch. And, excuse me, I thought that was a really fantastic idea, but I was a little disheartened that leadership wasn't one of the choices. So I hope to change your mind this morning. Like so many things in life, leadership starts with perceptions, and most importantly, how you view yourself. So how many of you lead a team, a program, or a department? Yikes. And how many of you lead an organization? And out of that whole group, how many of you arrived at your positions accidentally? Yeah. (laughs) So I also came to leadership accidentally. And now, decades later, with a lot of thinking, I believe it's the critical ingredient for building and sustaining healthy, responsive 21st century museums. When Ann Ackerson and I began writing Leadership Matters in 2012, we'd watched a lot of history and cultural institutions battered by social, economic, and cultural change. When we uh, revised the book this year, the revision just came out this summer, change was still a constant. In fact, we changed the name of the book, so it's now Leadership Matters, Leading Museums in an Age of Discord. In writing about leadership on my blog, I try to alert and inform all of you, the museum community, about leadership issues in the workplace and about the need for more intentional leadership training for museum and heritage organization staffs and boards of trustees. Um, And then there's the subject of gender. Uh, Both of our Leadership Matters books are built around 36 interviews. And while we were doing the first one, a number of women came to us and said, so when are you going to do the book on museum women? Because if you are, we're ready to spill the beans. Um, So in 2017, we published Women in the Museum. Both books begin with myths that we live with every day. So I'm gonna share a few of those myths with you this morning on leadership and gender, and try and paint a picture of museums, where museums are today, and most importantly, how we all fit in. 
So I thought maybe we should just start with who's working in all these places. Um, here are the numbers. And these come from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's the government. They count once a year. They release their figures in the spring. So this is 2018. We will get 2019 around April. As you can see, the total workforce is 338,000 people. 82% um, of us are white. 10% are black. 14% Latinx and 3% Asian. The lack of diversity is deeply embedded in our field. Fortunately, the rising voices of many young, diverse museum professionals, perhaps some of you, along with foundation support for scholarships, internships, professional development opportunities for minorities and professionals, there's some movement, the needle's starting to move a bit. So what about the women thing? Um, in 2018, the BLS reported that women comprise just under half the museum workforce. You would not know it from looking at this room. Um, but at 49.5%, that's a number to watch. And I'll kind of expand on that later. Um, it, it made a little jump between 2016 and 17, and then it it shrunk back. For those of you who are millennials and Gen Xers, it's possible because we lost 24,000 jobs um, between 17 and 18 that some of my generation has finally decided to move off stage. Um, but the point of all of this is if you look at this room, if you look at the graduate programs in public history and in museum studies and even in art history, there are a huge number of women, and there are a number of women in the junior ranks of museums. Um, so this is an important thing to think about. Um, and just so you know, parenthetically, uh, women make up 51% of the entire workforce. So here's the first myth. Anyone can run a museum, and its cousin, if you've led one museum, you can lead any museum. You may have been sitting at Thanksgiving dinner and had that elderly aunt that you only see once a year tell you that your job sounds so fun. And you work in a really pretty place, and gosh, you get to touch all that stuff, and it's just really cool, and there's no pressure, and it's really easy and breezy, and what's not to like? Um, I've even run into some museum trustees who comment like this, and certainly the public is like, wow, you work there, cool. Um, but no, one's, no one acts like it is a serious thing. And of course, this line of thinking subtly devalues not only what museums are all about, but what real leadership is about. So while there are many broad similarities among museums, they tend to have collections, they have oversight provided by a board, they often do programming, and many have a physical plant in which to house all this stuff, that's where the similarities end. In fact, as you know, museums are a wildly diverse and idiosyncratic world. So what are the challenges for today's museum leaders? Um, if leading a museum isn't a job for everyone, what are they up to? 
Well, here are some, and this is just scratching the surface. The first might be the workforce. We've talked about gender, and, but the other deal is many museums employ, employ four to five generations of workers and volunteers. Um, you may have a museum with, if, if you include the volunteers, they may start at high school and go up to way past retirement. Um, they have differing references, they have differing attitudes toward work, and that can easily cause some tension in the workplace. Perhaps you have experienced that. Um, but the upside is it's really important because of the breadth of perspectives that people bring to the table. The second is activism. And gosh, <laughs> just, just Google museums for the last month and you will find museum employees unionizing, protesting, standing up for climate change and social justice, calling out donors and trustees um, who don't hold the same, share the same museum mission and values. And then there's collections and representation and decolonization. Museum collections increasingly make headlines um, as, as they try to diversify collections and even up the ratio between women artists, for example, and male artists. And more than a few museums, you may, be, you may work at one, have deaccessioned to, um, to increase the diversity of the collection. There's the infrastructure. You may be lucky enough to work in a brand new place, but there are plenty of institutions that are dealing with staggering years, decades of deferred maintenance on their buildings. And last, and this sort of underpins everything else, is competition. We're all competing with people's audience, time, and money. And under, underweaving all of this is the fact that leaders, whether you're a program, department, or institutional leader, have few opportunities to develop and practice and hone their leadership skills. So what are those successful museums doing? In researching organizational success across nonprofit and for-profit spectrums, there are four things that rise to the surface. And they're not about collections or buildings or scholarship or even endowment. They are about leadership, mindset, and commitment to delivering on the promise of the mission. So the first, leadership convergence. I don't know if any of you saw the article yesterday in the Washington Post about Kaywin Feldman, one of, one of my idols, the recently appointed director of the National Gallery in Washington, and she's actually, her piece ends our book, Women in the Museum. Um, Kaywin has changed the leadership team at the National Gallery. She's done away with the um, whoever... Assistant director is not the right title, but that title has disappeared, and she has, I think, doubled the size of the team. And that speaks to this flattening of the hierarchy. So it, it isn't, it's less of a pyramid, it's flatter. Why? Because you get more voices, and you get more opportunity for differing um, opinions. Leaders are also agile. If, again, if you watch the news, you know anyone in California last week had to have a plan B. Um, 
it's pretty rough. But not just disaster. There's at any day a museum may have to take a, a hairpin turn, and the leader is responsible for that. Multidimensionality. Museums need to be connected inside and outside. Their directors need to speak the language of the trustees and the language of all their constituencies. And the best museums, the ones that are truly agile, are good listeners. They listen internally to their staff and externally to their communities, and they act on what they see and hear. Here's myth number two. Hard skills still trump soft skills. You'd think that this would have died um, years ago, but it lingers in many old school leaders. And since 35% of museum trustees are um, white males over age 65, um, who use corporate experience as a yardstick for evaluating leadership, it's no wonder this myth stays with us. The truth is, a good leader has to master a body of information and be proficient in some basic business practice. Good leaders need to be able to budget, they need to forecast trends, evaluate, and analyze results. But if they aren't able to humanize their knowledge and themselves, no amount of hard skills mastery will, will, um, will inspire enthusiasm and confidence. It's good to remember the soft stuff is the hard stuff. So we know who's working in the field and what some of the challenges are, but how do leaders meet these challenges? Well, when we wrote Leadership Matters, we, as I said, we interviewed 36 people, um, and we didn't apply these characteristics to them. They sort of rose up out of the interviews, and they are self-awareness, authenticity, courage, and vision. And of course, no, they all possess all of them, but obviously some days require more courage than authenticity. Um, many, are what, many of our, that group are what we term intentional leaders, people who make leadership a personal and professional journey by building self-awareness, and this is important, through reflection, discovery, Reevaluation and reinvention. That's sort of a rhythm that they go through daily, weekly, monthly, yearly. I'm going to assume that everyone here, and this again builds on what Mark said, is an intentional leader. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You would be having a leisurely breakfast somewhere looking at your phone. Um, participation in this conference means that you're willing to learn, turning the spotlight on yourself. Acknowledging your professional strengths and weaknesses and moving forward. That's what, that's what the Center for Creative Leadership terms leading, learning agile, sorry. Intentional leaders model that behavior for their organizations and that same behavior works organizationally too. So that the museum itself is mirror, mirroring that same arc of of reinvention. Can you learn leadership? Well, I think the answer is yes. What I've found in my work is that leadership skills can be learned, 
that anyone can be a leader no matter your age, your gender, or any other factor. Today's effective leadership is now as much about employee engagement as mastery of skills and knowledge. Being flexible, having strong teamwork skills, managing uncertainty, that's a biggie, thinking strategically are some of the strengths that museum leaders must have in order to be successful. And these strengths are not the sole province of any demographic. Here's myth number three. There are so many women in the field that gender equity will happen on its own. Sadly, <laughs> this is so not true. In writing about gender and museums, I've had a lot of people tell me that, well, heck, there's just a lot of women in the museum workplace, and, you know, why worry about these things? Um, first of all, we know that the museum workplace is not dominated by women, even though at times it may feel like it. Um, but second, even if a, a job sector like museums is at 50 or 70 or 80% of one gender, all those issues that women deal with in the workplace do not go away. There are still issues with equal pay. There are still issues with maternity and paternity leave. There are still childcare issues. And there is still, the, sad to say, the looming problem of sexual harassment. And then leaving all of that aside, economists will tell you that whether you're making widgets or you're making something metaphorical like a museum, the best product is a product made by the most diverse staff. So it's really important to watch that number and, and to make sure that the people around the table reflect the people in the, in the community you're trying to serve. I will add, especially for you folks, that women do tend to cluster in certain job titles, certain departments, and certain museums. So there may be days, and today may be one of them, where you doubt everything I've just said about the numbers, but in fact, they are true. So here's myth number four. The salary disparity between male and female museum workers is a thing of the past. No. Um, first of all, did you know that in 2016, women working full-time across the entire job spectrum in the United States were typically paid 82% of what men were paid? And that's white women to white men. If any of you want this uh, pay gap broken down by um, race, you should look at AAUW's page for gender and race. It's really good. Um, this is especially alarming, this gap, because today women are now the primary wage earners in 40% of American households with children under 18. The news is similar in the museum world. According to AAM's 2017 salary survey, when they control for museum budget size, women earn, oh, guess what? 82, per, 82 cents to the dollar for every dollar earned by their male counterparts. 
The AAM survey also reported, although women usually fill the majority of jobs in each position, it's clear that they typically receive less pay than their male peers. The exceptions are, where, there, where there's no gender gap, are human resources, CFO, and business manager. And if you think about that for a second, you realize that those are three positions that transfer across the nonprofit and into the for-profit world. So there's much more leverage to say, I need this salary or I'm going, and there's lots of places for me to go. While many women lead museums, particularly smaller museums, many institutions still bask in that traditional top-down hierarchy. While big-ticket leadership positions on boards and director's offices frequently go to men. And in fact, if you look at AM salary survey, you'll see that the higher you get, the, more, the larger the budget size, the fewer the women. The vast majority of women's salaries consistently fail to keep pace with men's, no matter the position. In fact, our friends at the BLS note that since 2004, we've, we've hovered between 81 cents, I think, and 83 cents um, <clears throat> to the dollar. And in the museum field, the disparity often widens, as I said, as salaries grow. And it, it doesn't go away. And it's not going to go away unless we make some changes. Does gender affect leadership? Yes. It surely does. In 1990, a woman named Judith Rosner wrote an article called Ways Women Lead for the Harvard Business Review. And if you're not a fan of the Harvard Business Review, which is kind of pricey, um, you should be, because there's a lot of interesting thought there. Um, this slide compares some of the leadership styles that Rosner discovered in her research between men and women. She highlighted the strengths associated with women's leadership, quote, their efforts to encourage participation and share power, and their attempts to enhance other people's sense of self-worth and to energize their followers. Knowing leadership is about influence and that it can be quite fluid depending on the situation, we could take exception to this kind of gendered classification of leadership. But given that sexual harassment is alive and well in this field, it's important that we understand traditional male and female leadership. So that segues into the last myth, which is sexual harassment doesn't happen here. I wish I could tell you that were true, but it is not. Um, we know that gender discrimination, along with race, racial, ethnic, and disability discrimination, is alive and well across pretty the American workplace. We in the nonprofit sector may like to think that our hollowed missions and our values exempt us, but that is not the case. In 2018, Ann Ackerson and I did a small survey. We ended up with um, between 700 and 800 responses. And about two months after our survey closed, two women on the West Coast, Nikhail Trevitti and Alethea Whitman, also did a survey and published an article as a result. Their article is called Facing Sexual Harassment and Abuse in the Feminizing Museum. 
they had um, 500 respondents. 90% of them were women or identify as women. Um, and their survey, um, you had to have actually been the victim of harassment. Ours only asked, and what you see here is only asked if you had either been or witnessed sexual harassment. But it's, it's pretty daunting to think that 49% um, of even 800 people in this field had either witnessed or been the victim of overt sexual harassment. And I will tell you that having done a number of these panels for AAM, it is shocking what's going on. And it is particularly shocking because you may work at a larger institution that has an HR department. Not that HR is perfect, but at least it's a place to go. But there are plenty of museums where there is no HR department. HR is the board, and you may be having an issue with a board member or a donor. Um, it's also important to note that intersections between gender discrimination and race and sexual orientation and age were all mentioned numerous times in both these surveys. And I'll just underscore that our comments for our survey revealed that discrimination often came from older board members, from volunteers, and from outside contractors. So I used this phrase, pink collar, a moment ago, and while many of you may have heard it, I just want to pause for a second to define it. The term joined common speech um, right around the Second World War, but it, it sort of reached a, a prominence in the 1970s. It refers to prof professions that are historically considered to be women's work, where women tend to dominate in terms of numbers, the helping and the caring professions, and those include teaching, libraries, nurses, counseling, and also the service professions, so um, housekeepers, waitstaff, flight attendants, and of course, many museum positions. And as you can see from this sort of unscientific little list, education and training don't have anything to do with what makes the profession pink. The inherited bias of what constitutes women's work means pink-collar work isn't seen as having the same value to the economy as white and blue-collar professions. Less value means less respect for both the profession and the individual women um, the individual woman worker, and that translates into, oh, big surprise, lower compensation, fewer benefits, and consequently, an uncertain retirement. So some of you who are waiting, just waiting for my generation to step out of the way, remember that part of the reason some people aren't leaving is because, to be honest, and forgive my word, but they had crap salaries for ages. So it's hard to retire. In many quarters, museums don't get the respect or the public funding they deserve. They're viewed as nice to have amenities, not critical elements of healthy societies. And I wonder some days if that's because the public views museums first and foremost as pink. Fortunately, many pink-collar professions are unionized, and that offers some hiring, wage, and benefits protections. One last sort of parenthetical thought about this is 
when a man enters a pink-collar profession, for example, when a man becomes a nurse, uh, their salaries are higher and their rise to the top is much more meteoric than women. So again, I do not know Mark, but I just want to say that we are on the same channel. Um, I want to talk for just a second about what we bring to work and remind us all that we are learners as well as leaders. Every fall, Ann Ackerson and I teach a course in museum leadership for the Johns Hopkins Master's Program. And this year, for the first time, we had a little pushback from some of our students during the section on gender and leadership. Not, not because they didn't believe us about these issues, but because some of the students consider themselves just past all that. They are so evolved that, you know, they were raised by moms that just put them on the right path, and they are not these people. Um, and all I want to say about that is that we all bring baggage to work. And if you think you don't, well, <laughs> good, but <laughs> check again. Um, <laughs> As intentional leaders, we all want a workplace that's equitable, that's empathetic, that's creative and agile, and for the love of God, one that respects all humans. Yes? Um, and part of that respect is recognizing that no matter how evolved you may think you are, you are not the point. It's the people you work with, and they may have had experiences with racism or sexual harassment that you need to just respect because it's respect that builds trust and change will only happen when trust is there. So is everyone a leader? I mean, you may be going, I roll, I am so not a leader, I don't want to be a leader, it's not my thing. Um, I've really struggled with the phrase, even though I use it a lot, of you can lead anywhere from anywhere in the room. Um, so before I close, I just want to return to those qualities that we focus on in Leadership Matters. They are self-awareness, authenticity, courage, and vision. Uh, the Center for Creative Leadership has their own set of skills. They, they list influence, communication, and thinking and acting systematically. But whatever, whatever set you pick and whatever title or position you're in, you have to ask yourself, am I willing to hone those skills so I, have, so I can help create and be a catalyst for change? And I know I'm about to sound really hallmarky and syrupy, but... You need to be the leader you would like to have. I have had some epically horrible bosses, and I know on many days it is just emotionally draining to go in and try and be a better person than the person who's getting the big salary and telling you what to do. But your team will be better for it. And the most important takeaway is that you can, you can say yes to this question anytime you want. Tomorrow, in a year. So just so we don't end on a completely dark note, um, 
there are some steps you can take. And I, I want to kind of go backwards and end with individuals. So if anyone is here and serves on a board of trustees, you need to have a value statement. You need to commit to diversity and gender diversity and equity. And you need to build a healthy, healthy relationships on your board and in your organization and check any abuse of power. If you're an institution, you need to walk the talk, and same deal. You need to have a value statement. Um, some institutions are finding that, that it is the public that's crossing the line in terms of values, and it's good to have that statement out in public so people know what's going on. You, and institutions like professional associations like this one need to make hiring, promotion, and salary transparent. I don't know if ARCS has a job board, but you need to make sure that you don't accept jobs that don't list the salary. It's a big honking waste of time for all of us to apply for a job that sounds like it's going to be nirvana and then find out they paid 32.5 and have no benefits. Um, last, if you're an individual, and particularly if you're a woman, know your value. I know you know you're all good, but but practice, even if it's home in front of your mirror, saying why you're good and not bursting into tears and not laughing and not feeling guilty about it. Um, develop your skills. Have a career plan. I know that sounds like the stupidest thing ever, but write it down. Write down what you want to do. You're not committing yourself. You can revise it any time, but be intentional. And last, and for me, this is probably the most important. I hope that all of you feel that you can speak up in the face of inequity. Your observation is your obligation. And so I just want to close. I'm one of the founding members of GEM, which is the Gender Equity and Museum Movement. And um, this past Monday, GEM, uh, we, we released a, um, a pledge and it's on the website, it's on change.org, and you can reach it through the GEM website. Um, and it asks you to pledge to help stop sexual harassment in the museum workplace. So um, thank you so much, and I'm happy to answer any questions. wanted to talk to you for a second about how maybe you don't necessarily get official leadership training, but ways in which people can sort of hone and develop their leadership skills when they aren't necessarily getting that support within their institutions. You are accidentally thrown into a situation in which now you're managing something and managing people and you've never done it before. Well, first of all, and we, I mentioned this last night, but I didn't elaborate. I recommend that you all have, um, well, some people, my colleague Ann calls it your posse, but you can also call it your kitchen cabinet. Um, they should not be anyone you're related to, anyone who's your best friend. They need to be people who are your professional colleagues who are going to tell you where the dog died, who are going to say, Joan, that was just the dumbest thing you ever did, and here's what you need to do to rectify that. Um, Part of that is because too many of us don't have a sounding board, and when something happens at work, you can go home and whine to your partner, who 
may or may not be sympathetic, um, or, or you just stuff it all inside. So having a little posse or kitchen cabinet gives you a place to take those big ticket issues where you think something, maybe you're in the right, maybe you're in the wrong, but even if it's a one-sentence email, I just email my group every once in a while and say, well, what about this? So there's that. Second of all, leadership is leadership. The workplace is the workplace. I mean, I know we all like to think that what we do in some ways is a little fancier than just a boring office, but people are people. Um, so sometimes you can find leadership training at your local chamber of commerce, which does some pretty awesome stuff. Um, there, are, there are leadership courses and places that don't have to be about museum leadership. And in fact, in some ways, that might be healthier. Um, if you work for someplace really fancy, there, there are leadership training. Um, ASLH does a leadership institute now twice a year. Um, there's the Getty, which is really fancy. Um, so those are, those are some places and things that, that I would look toward. Thank you. Okay, did that bring up any questions? Okay, go ahead. Hi, yeah, thank you so much for that. I think one of the things that might, it, it kind of veers a little bit off of collection management and registration, but perhaps an idea for a session in the future is um, the topic of negotiation for salaries. Because <laughs> I know it's very difficult, um, especially for women, also for men. And perhaps, like I said, it's a little more of the business side of what you usually do it at ARCs, but it might be a valuable topic for future conferences because it would benefit everybody to have some of those skills. We or did, a roundtable, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, we did this at ASLH in August here in Philadelphia, and it was an extremely popular um, uh, session. It, it wasn't just negotiation, but it was about, it was about many aspects of salary, um, both from the leader's point of view Unfortunately, we had two leaders in the room, um, one from the Ford Museum in Dearborn and one from Strawberry Bank in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, who both had made the commitment to raise salaries um, and had done that to raise them equitably and who were very open about the fact that this was, this was a personal decision that they had brought the board along and it was about, it was values that they couldn't, they couldn't cope with 30-year-old frontline staff living with their parents because they couldn't afford an apartment. Hi, Joan. Um, Hi. Thank you so much for your talk. Um, I had a question about ageism. Um, and ageism both as um, a young professional going into an institution um, as well as older professionals um, in institutions. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit on um, the effects of ageism and how to um, approach that. Well, I think it's like any bias that you bring to work. Um, I have certainly observed it in my own workplace. Um, less for um, my end of the spectrum and more for the 20-somethings who kind of get a verbal one of this. Um, you know, it'll be nice when you're old enough to really think like the rest of us, um, which is so disparaging and horrid. 
Um, again, I think that's a moment where your observation is your, observa- is your obligation. That's a moment for you to step in and say, oh, did you hear what Joan said? That, you know, I just want to build on that because that was a really important idea and not let people get away with that kind of stuff. Um, I think often we are careful in the workplace, and we should be because we have to see these people every day, sometimes more often than our families. Um, and, and so we don't, we don't want to be the shrewish, angry person who's always inciting um, fights. But there are also moments where you can say something without sort of being like, put up your dukes, but just say, you know, that, or pull someone aside afterwards and say, that wasn't really nice. Um, I think we, I, I know I share this with Sydney, we need to humanize our workplaces. And there's a line between between not causing a fight, but also standing up for what you believe in. And if you believe that everyone should be respected, and I can't imagine there's anyone in this room who doesn't think we should all receive respect. It doesn't matter whether you're 78 and still working or you're 26 and this is your first ever job and you're having trouble navigating. Um, We all deserve a level of respect. I'm, I'm not sure that's really helpful, but... Any other questions for Joan? You can, oh yeah, let me go this way. Hi, thank you so much. I'm at an institution that is focusing on diversity statements and all of these things and is starting to, you know, walk that, that talk. Um, and yet then there's the board. <laughs> How in the world do we crack that ceiling of it's, if we continue to focus on it, it has to be people who can raise and produce money for the institution. How do we break that track record of getting out of that normal of we just continue to get you know, the same types of board members over and over and over again? So even with institutions that are starting to really look to diversify and be more inclusive and all of those things, the board just seems completely untouchable. So do you have any advice on how to, as sort of middle management at an institution, start to address those inequities? Well. Um, I cannot for the life of me think of his last name, (laughs) but the director of the Ford Foundation, Darren Walker, thank you. Um, He has written quite a bit about this and also, as you say, about biting the hand that feeds you. I, I would say that just because you're a white male over 65 does not make you a bad person and that they are capable of change. Um, I think, I think one of the things that Darren Walker will tell you is that when he sat down with his hugely fancy white board, they actually, there's enough trust there that they actually said, we don't actually know any people of color. How do we do that? And he, he has opened doors for them and, and helped guide them. So a lot, a lot depends on your director. Also, I'm a big proponent, or I've become a big proponent of a value statement, of the behavior that you expect on your campus. And I say that because um, there have been a couple of instances, the 
sadly, the, uh, the MFA in Boston. And um, Jacob's Pillow in the Berkshires are two examples of bad instances, but um, also at the Civil Rights Museum, where frontline staff is coping with stuff that they should never, ever have to cope with. And they feel like they can't say anything because it's the visitors. And they're sort of upholding the institution. But it, I think having the board kind of tangle through what does it mean to, be, to behave and be the way we want people to be on this campus is a sort of backdoor into what do we believe in and what's important for this institution. I'm not saying that a board would necessarily do that, but, but it's a better way than just saying, oh, you're all old and white and bigoted. That doesn't go over so well. Um, so I, I really think that that's important. I don't know if that answers you, but okay. Okay, all right, I'm coming this way. Do you have any suggestions for how to make an environment of trust so that change can happen? <laughs> I'm, I'm not laughing because it's funny. It's just I am um, my little program is is between directors, and we had probably the most abysmal director on the face of God's earth, as my husband says, the worst thing to come out of Canada. Um, he was just. <laughs> He was just terrible, and he set up a culture of no trust. So, so there are two warring factions in the leadership who, who literally can barely sit at a table with one another, and we just go back and forth on how to do this. My, my sense is, and it's only a sense, is that, again, there's that sweet spot of I'm being honest with you without being rude. I've cooled my jets. Whatever you did that made my hair go on fire, I went away. I cried in the ladies' room. I'm back. Um, and I'm ready to talk about this just with no editorial stuff. But someone has to talk to the other person, human to human, before before you can build any trust. You have to have some successful interactions. Um, and maybe it's just a small thing. Um, you know, this is dumb. This is extremely dumb. But um, we have done some of those um, exercises at the beginning of a staff meeting where we just do highs and lows. Um, and it could be anything. Um, and you start with the low. Uh, you know, I had a flat tire on the way to work, and I was late, and it was snowing, and I couldn't deliver my kids to school, and that was my low. And then you talk about your high, and there's no real interaction except listening. Um, but it humanizes the people around the table a little bit. Um, because to me, that's the only way this is going to happen. And, and the other thing is, and I, ha I have a lot of baggage about one of these warring factions in my own workplace. And I really have to tamp it down, because there are a couple of them I just want to punch. And um, I, you know, we're never going to get to where we need to be if I punch anyone. OK. 
Okay, there was another one over here. Hi. Um, so this is related to some of the topics that have already come up about negotiating, advocating for yourself, ageism a little bit. Um, but in an industry that is um, often largely nonprofit and dealing with budget issues and things like that, um, something that I've noticed is there's this concept even among employees that are paid of being kind of paid in experience when you're young. Um, and, you know, there's even a session, I think, that is about, you know, how to get your foot in the door and kind of starting with, you know, doing a volunteer position and things like that. And then when you jump from, let's say, being a volunteer to being paid, there's still this concept that exists of, oh, you're so young, we're kind of doing you a favor by working in this industry and getting paid and experience and whatever. So, my question is, um, do you see some kind of a way to combat that concept of low pay because you're young and this industry doesn't have money? <laughs> um, not really, but yes. Um, <clears throat> I One of the things, and, and I have to um, compliment a, excuse me, ASLH, the American Association for State and Local History, and the New England Museum Association, because they have they are really um, carrying the flaming sword for salary transparency and job advertisements and no unpaid internships. And I think we should just end those. They stink. <laughs> this is a field that already asks a hugely expensive graduate degree of all of us. And that, to me, is, is a huge ticket that you've already put on the table before you even get in the door to make your paltry salary. Um, I think in terms of, of your own life and your own negotiation, this is one of those moments where you do have to know your value. And you have to know what it means, and you have to have really rehearsed, e even if it means, you know, role playing with someone who will play the, you know, the, the devil person um, in the interview, um, so that you can come back with that. And it, if what they're offering is unacceptable, and I know we have graduate school loans, we have mortgage and rent and everything else, so it's hard to say no. But you need to be able to say no if you can. Because the only way the field is going to change is when we stop enabling and going, oh my god, you're so, you're so nice to have me. I'll just take that job. And I don't care that I could make more at McDonald's and probably have better benefits. Is that? And the, the other thing is, <clears throat> if you are, if you've sort of left, uh, well, two other things. One is it really helps if you're an emerging professional that you have a mentor, not because they're going to find you a job, but because they're going to help you sort of hone who you think you are and point you in some important directions. And second of all, if you're sort of over that first hump, for the love of God, I don't care what you negotiate for. Do not say yes on the first go-around. 
At least say, well, I need to think about this. I'll get back to you. Do not act excited and like their lousy salary is the best thing you ever heard. I mean, inwardly, you can be jumping around inside yourself. But go away and figure out, even if you can't ask for money, do you want to make sure you can go to a professional conference every year? Do you want your moving expenses paid for? You are in the sweet spot in that moment. They do not want to go through this process again. It's very costly and a pain. So ask for what you need. Do you need childcare expenses? Do you maybe, do you get benefits at 35 hours? Could you only work 35 hours and then also pick up your kids after whatever? So if you think you're going to get an offer, if you do get an offer, know everything that's on the table, not just the money, and negotiate for anything that will help you be a better, happier person. Hi. I, um, I'm curious in your thoughts around the role of the union in the museum uh, and how, you know, you mentioned that as one of the challenges with activism, protesting and unionising, how unions can be seen as a strength and an asset and a resource and how we can use unions to talk with our colleagues and boards and leaders, but in a way that's not antagonistic. Um. I'll, I'll be honest. I mean, I, I watch unionization from afar. I, I've never been part of a um, movement to join a union. Um, and and I don't, I don't want to stand up here and act as though having a union is, is the best thing ever. Um, because just getting union access doesn't mean everything is going to change overnight it does mean that there's a third party who's negotiating for you as a group of workers. Um, I know that boards do not like unions. In fact, I'm, again, I'm blanking on the name, but there's an art museum in California that just um, at their, their frontline staff was in negotiations with the union, and they have laid off the entire frontline staff. So that was their response. Um, <clears throat> so I guess I'm I'm guarded. Um, I I think I think there's a lot unions offer, but not necessarily. But but I don't think it's perfect. Um, I, I think the most frightened institutions run you know, or just like, go away, we're, we're not going to deal with this, because I think they immediately take blame that, well, something must be wrong, and clearly something is wrong. If, if you can't live on the salary that they're paying you in the city where you are working, then, then there's a, a big issue. Um, and very often, it, it, it's like finally having to bring a lawyer into negotiations in HR, um, Sometimes that's the only thing that makes them sit up and listen. I don't know if I answered your question, but. So my question um, comes with the asterisk that I'm sitting next to my boss and this is not her. Um, <laughs> I warned her I was going to ask a question and I said, this is not about you. Can you talk a little bit um, 
obviously you're in a room of predominantly women, although I recognize that the field is not predominantly women per se, but as we grow and rise up in, in the museums, either within small groups, departments, or institutionally, um, the idea of the queen bee syndrome and how we can help um, keep our colleagues accountable for building up um, females and people of color in the museum rather than essentially saying, well, that's not how it was when I was in your position and I had to, I was subjected to these horrible things, so now you also have to as well. And recognizing that, yes, you know, people of, you know, older people might have set the stage for us and now we're trying to ask for more and rather than saying, I didn't have more, so you shouldn't have more, how can we keep them accountable and continue to the upward mobility? Well, I would return to where we were maybe 10 minutes ago, which is you want a human, uh, an empathetic workplace. And, and I don't, I don't, and I didn't mean to suggest that somehow um, because women suffer the pay gap and many women have suffered sexual harassment and other things within the museum workplace, that they are, that women are perfect bosses. Mm, far from it. And one of the things that women, all of us, need to really work on is, is reaching back and helping our colleagues or reaching sideways. Um, and again, that speaks to n not just if you see them being harassed or hurt in some way, but, you know, it's that rising tide raises all boats. Um, if, you're, if you're head of a program or a department, talk about them at your leadership meetings. Say how good they are. Go thank them. Um, you know, again, be the person that you wish your leader was. Um, I, I work in a culture where we hardly ever say thank you. And I've really tried to go out of my way to say, I really appreciate what you did, blah, 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 um, rather than, well, that would have been great if you hadn't done X, Y, Z, because I work in a very gotcha kind of, place. So I think a lot of it is, sadly, it's in human behavior. And um, I, I despair of people of my generation who, who act as though that this is some sort of rite of passage. I suffered, so you should suffer too? No. No. I, we should all want something different and better. And Part of it is knowing your value. Part of it is being a good human. And, and part of it is trying to have that kind of honest communication. OK, I think we'll do one more question so we can stay on schedule. Here. Hi, Joan. Um, over here, in the middle. Ah, there. OK. okay. Um, so as a hiring manager um, and one with not a lot of control necessarily on the budget per se, but what can I do to humanize the negotiation process to, to make sure it's transparent to someone who may be a little timid about asking for stuff? So I want to know, how can I make it more human? Well, first of all, I'm not a big praiser of AAM, but I do think this is one place where they've done really good work. Um, they have a whole thing on how to hire without bias. And you should go through it. It, it includes, for example, removing names from the first read-through or the first look um, so that they're red blind. 
A lot of people read stuff into names that is unfortunate. Um, posting your, your salaries or your salary range. Um, making sure that, <clears throat> that everyone is kind of schooled in the actual art of hiring. Um, make, you know, so people aren't asking silly and inappropriate questions. Um, and then making sure that the onboarding process, a word I loathe, but I don't know another word, um, that, that the first six months, say, in your place is kind of structured. And there are checkpoints to make sure that people are okay. Um, that they are navigating this culture. And it's, it's one of the weird things that organizations do is they throw you in, they expect you to figure it out, and then they punish you if you don't. Um, and yet there was no one there to really tell you, well, this is the expectation. So if the expectation is why, then let's let them try and meet it before we get mad at them. Um, I don't know, does that help? I was thinking specifically of the negotiation and the telegraph. There may not be salary, but there is more to be asking for to, to help them in that particular. I'm, I'm not an HR person, but I, I could see my HR person's hair on fire um, <laughs> for you to do that. But um, I, I think... I don't know, you'd need to check, but I think you can certainly sort of lay out what the, pack, what the package is. These are, these are the places that we benefit you. Money, um, health insurance, time, vacation, professional development, so that, that whoever it is is absolutely clear that there are choices in these areas. And then you kind of have to leave it up to them and that's why I was saying to everyone here, don't leave money on the table, because your time is your money, too. And sometimes what you need out of a job, you know you're not going to get any more money, because there just there isn't any more. You can negotiate. You might get a little bit. But, but what you really need is extra time. And so it's important to at least ask for that. But I don't think that you, as the hiring person, I think the institution would come down on you like a ton of bricks if you were sort of the counselor as well. I'd love to see you try, but I don't want to get you fired. <laughs> that was Joan Baldwin from the ARCS Conference 2019, Philadelphia. Please subscribe to hashtag ArcsChat on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening.